This is episode 189 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you by our Shakespeare Spotlight sponsors. This is the section where we shine a light on theaters, festivals, craftsmen, and educators working in the Shakespeare space. These companies offer you performances, products, and Shakespeare swag. Please stop by the show notes and thank them for supporting our show by clicking on their links from our website. Hi, I'm Todd Butler, Associate Dean and Professor of English in the College of Arts and Sciences at Washington State and author of Literature and Political Intellection in Early Stuart England. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. People rarely did these sorts of rituals themselves, or if they did, it's on the advice. In other words, they, they go and ask, I'm bewitched, my house, we need protection, my child is ill, we think it's witchcraft. The county folk will either go and visit or give instructions for a fee. Obviously, all this is professional and fee paying. So they're fundamental to this. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. You may have heard of common superstitions like throwing salt over your shoulder when you spill something to ward off bad luck or crossing your fingers when you tell a lie to prevent the consequences of that transgression. These kinds of small acts to try and control or influence the spiritual realm around you were more than just common superstitions for the life of William Shakespeare. Even in Protestant England, where monarchs like Elizabeth I and James I after her were actively harsh against anything even suspected of being witchcraft or associated with magic, simultaneously there were households of families and property owners around England convinced of the power of spiritual influence over their lives, and they sought out protection against those things from cunning folk. Cunning folk were witches, wizards, and magicians whose practices included mixing up specialty brews to cure someone of bewitchment, as well as practicing various kinds of miraculous healing. What's surprising about these cunning folk is not only that they were tolerated in a very anti-witchcraft society like Protestant England, but that they were rampant across England to the point of being common and ordinary for Shakespeare's lifetime. Here today to explain what the cunning folk were, their place in society, and what kinds of magic they practiced is our guest and author of Cunning Folk and the Production of Magical Artifacts, Owen Davies. Owen Davies is a British historian who specializes in the history of magic, witchcraft, ghosts, and popular medicine. He is currently professor in history at the University of Hertfordshire and has been described as Britain's foremost academic expert on the history of magic. For more about Owen and his work, check out the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Owen. Welcome to the show. Hello. We're going to start things off this week with a question from my personal background, because as I was reading through your book, I felt like this may have been an example of cunning folk. My family is from rural northern Alabama, and my grandfather told stories about a man the town would call when anyone wanted to put in a well. This man was known as a water witcher because he could locate water beneath the ground using a special shaped stick that he would literally go out into the woods and find and then bring back 
and find water under the ground. It sounds really fantastic, but this man could get this done. And he was a respected member of the community because he had this gift. And as I'm looking through Owen's book on cunning folk, I started to wonder if a water witcher was an example of the kind of cunning folk that would have been there in Elizabethan England. Is this a holdover from Shakespeare's lifetime in the in the sense of this is an example of what cunning folk and their associated magic might look like? There are different character, the water diviners. We have them in from Elizabethan right through to 20th century, such characters in England, Britain and Europe as well. They're generally very different. They're normally just specialists in that divining of water. I don't think I've come across a cunning person who also offered that service. And if they did, they would probably be using something which was more magical than what is essentially was considered at the time as a kind of pseudoscience. I mean, you've actually got um, printed pamphlets in the 16th century, German ones in particular, which explain the whole art and science of water divining. There's a long history there of that. So what you're experiencing in Alabama is, is, is something that goes right back hundreds of years as a tried and tested method. So, well, were cunning folk respected members of society or were they considered like outliers and fringe members of the community? They're ambiguous characters because they offer all this range of service because they're basically saying, I have magic, I have magic books, or I have relations with the fairies who give me these powers or God gives me these powers. Um, you know, I am special. I can use my power for good or I can use my power for evil. So don't, don't cross the cunning man or the cunning woman because people knew perfectly well they could bewitch you. Now, you know, most of the time people are coming to cunning folk to deal with witches and bewitchment, but you had to be careful. You had to be really careful. So they're ambiguous. And some of them exploited that. And I've looked at cunning folk from the 16th century through until the 20th century, and you get some really unsavory characters, human nature, people in your community who basically know that they can manipulate others through the fear of their powers will sometimes exploit that. Why was the practice of cunning folk magic allowed to take place in Protestant England, where witches and even the suspicion of being a witch was enough to see a person imprisoned or even executed? This whole existence of cunning folk seems counter to what we know about Elizabeth I and certainly about James I that came after her. This kind of superstition and witchcraft, why was it tolerated? Most of what cunning folk did was explicitly illegal. The witchcraft, what's often referred to as the Witchcraft Act of 1563 and then 1604, when you look at that act, it's actually designed to prosecute and essentially eradicate not only witches, but cunning folk. So it explicitly mentions, for example, various acts of divination in that. So detecting treasure is a criminal offense. In a sense, the range of activities that they did could broadly speaking, come under that. So when it comes to 1604 and James's Act, um, that adds a, an extra layer, which is about talking to spirits. And sometimes cunning folks said that they got their powers and they talked to angels or they talked to the fairies. So all these, th all these activities really are either explicitly or implicitly part of what's made an outlawed and potentially you know, um, you could be executed for. So we have to be a bit careful here because the acts were actually designed to target cunning folk as well as those accused of witches. What was the difference between cunning folk and witches? This, this was a debate at the time that Shakespeare was alive. There's a guy called William Perkins, who was a kind of demonologist based at Cambridge University, a theologian. He kind of set this out because he was an ardent anti-cunning folk theologian. And he basically says, look, 
all witches are bad. So he says, people may think these cunning folk are good witches, and they're good because they deal with the black witches, but actually they're all as bad as each other. And Pilkins even says, actually, actually, these good witches are even worse than the bad witches, the black witches. And his reason for saying this is because he says people go to these cunning folk and believe that they have these special powers, that they have these special powers, and that lures them away from God. And essentially, by luring in clients, they were, in a sense, taking their souls away because they were blaspheming. They were not placing their faith in God. Whereas if, you, if a, a black witch went and bewitched someone, you know, that, that person who's bewitched is not in danger of being damned because they've, they've done nothing. They're innocent. So it becomes quite a complex theological uh, debate at this time. But essentially, the laws are put in place because the theology says that good, witch, good witches, although they weren't generally called good witches at the time, were as bad or worse than bad witches. Owen's paper mentions wizards specifically as a kind of cunning folk from Shakespeare's lifetime. Owen, are we talking about Harry Potter or Merlin kind of wizardry here? Not really. There's a range of terms that float around in the early modern period and right through into the 20th century for these characters. We're talking, I I give the general term and most people do, cunning folk, cunning men, cunning women. They were also known in the sources as wise men, wise women. They were also called conjurers. Sometimes they were also called wizards as well. Uh, Some of these terms are a bit regional uh, and and some of them you find in different sources uh, across the country. So, you know, a wizard, as normally mentioned, say, in in, literature, literature of Shakespeare's time, um, it could sometimes refer to what you might call a learned magician, someone who, from a kind of a medieval tradition of exploring magic, natural magic, as an intellectual pursuit. But often wizard is also used to describe, at a popular level, these, these cunning folk. So that's the kind of impression Shakespeare had for Prospero, for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Archaeological evidence has produced finds that include witch bottles and written charms. We talked with Brian Hogard back a few weeks ago about some of these finds more specifically, and you can check the links in the show notes to find his episodes on that. But Owen, I wanted to ask you about these artifacts being found in people's homes. Some were even carved into the framing around the fireplace, for example, suggesting it was quite common in Elizabethan England for a family or a household to protect themselves and their property against evil spirits as a matter of course. Were cunning folk the members of the community someone went and found to get the instructions for how to protect their home against witchcraft? Yeah, they're central figures. And quite a lot of the sort of objects or things or rituals that people did to protect themselves and their homes were under the guidance of cunning men and cunning women. People rarely did these sorts of rituals themselves, or if they did, it's on the advice. In other words, they they go and ask, I'm bewitched, my house, we need protection, my child is ill, we think it's witchcraft. The cunning folk will either go and visit or give instructions for a fee. Obviously, all this is professional and fee-paying. So they're fundamental to this. There are lots of issues with some of the things you might find on the internet about protective devices and protective symbols. And it's a bit more problematic. And academics are increasingly skeptical about some of these sort of apotropaics that we find. But, you know, if we do, to pick on one which we know is certain because it's, it's written about a horseshoe. A horseshoe was a powerful anti-witch 
charm which people did put above their doorways both outside and inside we have the references from you know late 16th century sources about this and again when you look into those what often happens is that the person says i think i'm bewitched they go to a cunning person it's the cunning person who advises they put the horseshoe above their door to protect them for example so you know, iron, the reason why, again, there's, you can see that there's, there's lots of rubbish written about this sort of stuff on the internet. But I mean, one of the reasons why horseshoes is not to do with ancient fertility cults and horses and things like that. A horseshoe is a piece of old iron. And again, we have sources from the late 16th century, which are explicit in saying that old iron, old iron, found iron have potency and have power. So it's not just any old horseshoe. It's not just, you know, it, it's, there's a whole ritual and we only get glimpses of this there's lots of stuff going on at this period in terms of popular magic that we just don't know about as well so what about medicine did cunning folk practice medicine or healing essential to the business you know along with detecting thieves along with provoking love for people along with providing charms and protection against witches along with identifying thieves and witches and along with astrology, medicine was a key part of this. And no, no self-respecting or viable cunning person, whether male or female in this period, uh, would have been able to practice without offering healing services, and obviously mostly through herbal remedies at this time. But also, uh, in, you get a mix. So in other words, they may give you what we find a perfectly orthodox um, herbal remedy, which you're licensed physician in the local town would have given you so in other words they're operating on the same level often as your licensed physician this but depending on what the ailment is or what the desire of the client is you know they may give you a in a sense a natural remedy and at the same time they might give you a written charm or some other magical talisman etc to go with it so the, the you know, in a sense the orthodox medicine the natural medicine goes hand in hand with this and often astrology comes into this as well so in other words herbs are picked at certain times the, med- uh, the medicine is given at full moon or v- various lunar cycles so yeah medicine and healing is fundamental and even when they're curing witches and uh, sorry curing witchcraft they often give in a sense, natural remedies to do for natural causes. So, you know, the client might say, I have terrible pains in my stomach. I think it's witchcraft. And the cunning person might actually give them some tonics for the stomach at the same time as giving them something for witches. So they're clever. And they're, they are often quite learned in medicine. I wonder about how these cunning folk were found by the community members when they needed to, to locate them, as, you know, assuming practicing cunning folk magic was illegal. Do we have any surviving records of individuals who were open about their status as a cunning folk person? Do we do we have records of people who said, yep, that's me. I, I am a cunning person? Yeah. I mean, because they're potentially open to prosecution under the, the Witchcraft Act, you may think they were really secretive, but they're not that secretive. There's a kind of a balancing act. And certainly under English common law, when, when the only way that a prosecution can take place is for someone to make a complaint, if no one makes a complaint and everyone basically says, well, we'll keep this person in our community, we don't like them very much, but by God, we'd rather have them than have to deal with all these witches, then they actually practice fairly openly, surprisingly openly, considering the dangers they're in from prosecution. I think that tells you something about the communities they live in who want to, in a sense, make sure that they don't get rid of the one person who, yeah. who, can, who can do something against these even more terrible people in their communities. And, I, you know, you can try and plot them out across the country. Basically, anyone in England in Shakespeare's time would have been within a day's walk of a cunning person. 
essentially. Now, you mentioned that the iron and the horseshoes was not about, you know, going back to ancient fertility rites and things like that, but was something much more practical and just that iron horseshoes were commonly available. So I wonder where the entire tradition of cunning folk originated. Did it get started in the 16th century or is this tradition an influence from somewhere else? We know much more about cunning folk from the 16th century onwards because of the witch trials. Even though only a small number of cunning folk were prosecuted under these witchcraft laws, that's where we get a lot of the information because we get all the depositions. Even then, when we're looking at the bulk of witchcraft prosecutions, so many times when you're looking at depositions and statements, you'll find in the background the cunning person. In other words, they're not being prosecuted. But in the depositions, you know, people are saying, well, I went to that and he told me it was a witch. And that's when I went and blah, blah, blah. And I think she's a witch. So they're, they're there. and We get this huge wealth of information. Prior to the Witchcraft Acts, we have less information, but we do have a rich source in what we call church courts. So church courts, moral courts, which were operating through the medieval period. And we do have records there in the 16th century, late 15th and early 16th centuries of these courts. So we know they're, they're around. We know these people are around because they're being prosecuted. And we know it from sort of borough courts from the 13th century as well. So it's clear that these same sorts of characters offering the same range of services are, are practicing for centuries before the, for the time of Shakespeare. It's only they become so much more apparent because of the witch trials. I know we would love to explore the history of cunning folk, magic, and wizardry from Shakespeare's lifetime a whole lot more. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, we're in the anniversary year of Keith Thomas's Religion and the Kind of Magic, uh, which came out in 1971. And that's still a a seminal source on cunning folk in the early early modern England. So, you know, anyone interested in pursuing this topic go to keith thomas's um, monumental book because the sections on there are great on cunning folk rich rich information um there's another book which came out again or perhaps about uh, 20 years ago again now no a bit later than that sorry and that's by emma Wilby, which is called cunning folk and familiar spirits and that's an interesting take again rich in early modern sources she puts a spin on it which is all about shamanism which is maybe not something that I go down into myself, but it's a really rich and well-researched book full of, of Elizabeth and Stuart sort of examples on that. If you're interested in the whole milieu of healing and astrology and the ways in which people felt about their illnesses, including witchcraft, then there's a brilliant online free resource called the Casebook Project, which was run out of Cambridge University, uh, led by Lauren Cassell. And this, this basically free, Anyone can access it, and it's the the full notebooks of two astrologer physicians um, called Simon Foreman and Richard Napier, who are practicing around 1600. And, you know, the actual originals are pretty difficult to read, but you'll find huge amounts of guidance and explanatory notes on the casebook site. And it's a hugely rich insight into the mental and inner, inner lives of people at that time and their fears about witchcraft. And, you know, um, both of those characters, Foreman and Neighbor, are also providing sorts of what you might call religious charms and talismans as well. In a sense, they're acting in part like cunning folk. These are excellent resources for sure. Thank you so much for mentioning them. We'll link to all of these as well as Owen's work in the show notes for today's episode. Owen, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy (laughs) of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I I think um, it was was a good question. I was thinking about this one. Uh, Having worked on this book a lot, 
uh, and if, if, uh, I, I'm going to choose Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, and this came out in 1584. It's, it's quite a well-known book now. You know, Reginald Scott, it's an extraordinary book, extraordinary book. He's one of the few vocal skeptics about witchcraft at this time. We still don't know why he wrote it. It's a big book. Uh, you know, he was, he was scouring over two or 300 continental texts on witchcraft and demonology and magic at the time. You know, he's a Kentish gentleman who spends most of his time looking after his modest estate and yet took the time and energy to write this extraordinary sort of critique of Catholicism, of magic, of popular magic. He hates cunning folk, and it's all about trying to undermine the power of cunning folk. And it includes charms. It includes a whole range of talismans and spells. It basically says, look at all this. I'm going to give you all this information. It's all rubbish. This is the sort of thing that cunning folk um, do for you. I'm going to give it to you for free. And on top of that is this whole critique of um, and skepticism about the poor women who are being prosecuted and executed for witchcraft as well. So it's an extraordinary book, 1580, published in 1584. And, you know, again, you know, if you want an insight into Shakespeare's life and times, then and, and, and spend some time on a desert island, you know, trying to get your head around that and into those lives, then, you know, original Scott's discovery of witchcraft is, you know, going to be at the top of your list. Absolutely. Yes. Got to check that one out. Thank you for suggesting that. What is the next project for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I've just finished a book with a colleague called Kerry Holbrook, and that's actually about the material magic of protecting homes and other buildings from the post-medieval period onwards. So that's coming out shortly. And that, that looks at a whole range of things, including horseshoes and old iron and hagstones and all such things. But I'm currently currently working on a book which looks around the links of uh, between insanity and the supernatural. And that's that's mostly in the age of the asylum in the 19th century, but also draws back and looks at where these ideas about supernatural insanity come from back into the early modern period. Those are excellent projects. We will link to Owen's work as well as where you can keep up on finding out when his next book comes out in the show notes for today's episode. Owen Davies, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of cunning folk. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Be sure to explore the show notes for today's episode to find all of the links to the resources Owen mentions today, as well as some images, woodcuts, and other fun tidbits we found and share for you right there in the show notes. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 189. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 189. Our episode this week is brought to you by our Shakespeare Spotlight sponsors. These are companies that partnered with us to support the show, and each one offers a special Shakespeare history value for you. There are festivals that offer places to see Shakespeare's plays performed both virtually and on stage, as well as craftsmen, scholars, and merchants who offer historically accurate Shakespeare gear like quill pens, iron gall ink, and even wax tablets. We want to thank these companies for helping us keep producing the show here each week through their sponsorship. And if you like the work we do here, we invite you to thank these sponsors as well by clicking on their links in the show notes and exploring all the cool Shakespeare things they have to offer. Thank you for supporting our show. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.